We're going to just get into the Bible reading. This one's a really long one, so get comfy. But John chapter 11, 1 to 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anybody walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Thanks, Josh. And yeah, huge welcome. Just want to extend my welcome to Josh. It's so great to see you here. Whether you are someone who's here each and every week, whether this is your first time this morning, um, it's just so good to have you with us. My name's Jacob, if we haven't met. And um, yeah, we're just going to spend some time walking through that story that, just re- that Josh read for us. But before we do that, let's just start our time by praying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray as we come to your word now. And as we look at this account of what you have said and what you have done, that we would be open, open-minded, open ears, open eyes, and with open hearts, looking to see what you have to say to us today. That our lives and our experience of them and our understanding and experience of you would be sharpened and clarified by what we see in this passage. So we pray that you'd be with us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of my favorite songs, actually, of all time is, is by the band The Flaming Lips, and it's probably their most well-known song, which is uh, the song Do You Realize? And it's an interesting song because it's pretty, if you've heard it, it's pretty upbeat. It kind of feels a bit kind of poppy. It's got this almost Beatles-esque kind of chord progression that can lull you into thinking that you're listening to what would you know, otherwise be a relatively easily digestible pop song. But the lyrics in it are actually quite haunting. The song opens with these four lines. Do you realize that you have the most beautiful face? Do you realize we're we're floating in space? Do you realize that happiness makes you cry? Do you realize that everyone you know someday will die? Now that fourth line in particular is a shocker. They're asking the question of how aware are we of some of the truest, most undeniable realities, not least of which is the fact, and it is completely undisputable, that death will come for everyone. And it's a shocking thought to kind of hear it said so bluntly, isn't it? It almost feels vulgar or offensive. But it's weird how something that is so obvious and so undeniable can be so offensive to hear, can't it? It is not words we want to hear. It is not a thought we want to to grapple with. When I recently pointed out to my wife, just as she was getting ready to go to sleep, that on average, we'll attend the funerals of half the people we know and care about, and the other half of them will attend ours, she was not impressed with that statement as she was trying to turn her mind off and go to sleep. Uh, She was not impressed at all, because it's not exactly a thought that puts a spring in your step. It's It's a heavy thought. Thinking about the inevitability of death is a bit like when there's like a fly that's flown into your car and you just quickly want to get the window down and shoo it out as fast as possible. Because death is not a happy thought. It's the opposite. Most of the saddest moments of our lives, both those that we've already experienced and those that we are yet to experience, are moments centered on the reality of death. Because death, as we know, brings with it the end. The end of relationships, of possibilities, of life, and everything that comes with it. And we're unique amongst all other living creatures of being acutely aware of the inevitability of death. The American philosopher William James wrote that the knowledge that we must die is the worm at the core of the human condition. That if life is kind of like an apple, you're kind of munching your way through, trying to enjoy and savor it as much as possible. When you get to the the realization, the reality that death is coming, it is almost 
such a bad and toxic and sour thought that it spoils the whole thing. So we avoid it. We avoid the thought of it. And we, as a culture, live in one of the times and places in history that it, where death is most separated from the everyday life. It is normally something that is confined to the sanitized environment of a hospital. And yet, even then, we can't avoid it forever because the reminders come. They come when we turn on the news and you see story after story of tragic, unexpected losses of life. And they come when things hit closer to home in the diagnosis or the death of a loved one. See, death is an inescapable reality to grapple with, and we will either grapple with it on our terms or we will be forced to grapple with it on its terms. And I'm not starting like this because I woke up and thought, it's a nice sunny day out there. How can I just really bring everyone right back down um, on, this, on this Sunday morning? But it's because the scene that we're looking at today, the passage that we're getting into that Josh just read, is a scene of grief and mourning. It is centered around a death. And it's the scene that sets the, sets the tone for Jesus's, one of Jesus' most radical claims that he is the resurrection and the life. The claim that death, as horrible as it is, has a solution. And that solution is a person. So we're going to dig into this text. And it is a bit of a longer one, but we're going to be working through it bit by bit seeing how it is that Jesus confronts the reality of death, how he engages with it, and to see how he enables us to navigate a world that is tainted by death and to do so with hope. So if you've got a Bible open, you've got a phone open, John 11 is where we're going to be all morning today. And it picks up this story with the account of a grave illness of one of Jesus' friends. It starts by saying there is a certain man in verse 1, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus gets this message that he's sent by two women he deeply cares about, about their brother who he also cares about. And they've sent news that, he's, that their brother is sick. And clearly sick enough to warrant this, this messenger being sent out a great distance to come to Jesus and let him know. And the reason that they sent for Jesus is because they know Jesus to be a healer, one who works miracles. And the implication is clear that they are hoping that Jesus will come to the scene and heal Lazarus before it is too late. It is a relatively simple request of these two sisters to someone that they love asking desperately for help. But the way that Jesus responds to this is anything but straightforward. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So already we're getting into some uncomfortable territory in this story. That Jesus is putting forth that there is a, some kind of sickness, even suffering and pain that someone might go through that is for the glory of God. That somehow what is going on in this moment for Lazarus will be for the ultimate good of God and even for them. And so this is the action that Jesus takes. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's pretty peculiar if you think about it, because that's not really how you'd expect that sentence and the logic of it to run. You'd expect something more like, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything, hired a horse, and galloped to Bethany. That would be a, a kind of 
fitting sentence to kind of insert there, or even Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he miraculously healed him despite the great distance between them. That's not what we see. It says because he loved them, he does nothing. He just stays where he is. And he allows Lazarus to continue in his sickness and suffering and ultimately death. And we're told he does this because he loves them. That's something to, to wrestle with, isn't it? Um, as, we, as we seek, as we do each week here as a church, to be kind of building up a picture that is based in reality of what God is like and what Jesus is like, to have room for God and for Jesus to operate in ways that are genuinely mysterious. Ways that from his vantage point, knowing what he knows and what he plans to do makes sense, but from the vantage point of others, seems baffling. I think we've got to have a, a category in our thinking about God for this type of action, because if, if not, every unanswered prayer will feel like a lack of love. The closest kind of example I can think to, to, to describe of what this is like is, is, is a flawed one, and it's even a bit patronizing in some way because it puts ourselves in, in the position of a child, but it's the dynamic that often comes up with how parents relate to the requests of their children. Earlier this week, Sarah and I, we finished our, our Christmas shopping and got home. That's just a little humble brag, just to slot in there. And we got home and our son, River, who's three, saw in one of the bags um, a toy sticking out. It wasn't clear to him what the toy was, but you can tell from the colors and stuff, this isn't groceries, this is a toy. And he said, what's that? I said, oh, look, it's, it's nothing, don't worry about that. But he, he's already aware, he knows what's going on. And he said, no, like, is that a toy? Can I have it? And I said, no, you can't have it. It's not for now. And he pushed it back. I said, look, it's for Christmas, it's not for now. And he said, no, I want it now. Can I have it now? And he started crying, saying that he wanted this gift. And it would be true to say that because I loved him, I didn't let him have it. And that's because, you know, limited budget, we kind of, we're not made a present. But it's because I know that if I gave him that present now, and then on Christmas morning he had nothing, the tears would be even greater. That would be a less loving thing to do. And that's on a human level where, like, you know, flawed. I shouldn't have let him see the present in the first place. It's kind of on me. But, but how much more for Jesus who actually knows what people need most? We know with benefit of hindsight, at least in this story, that Jesus had a plan behind his delay. To not just love Lazarus in this short-term way of, of giving him this healing, but to do something better that was actually going to be for the ultimate good of him and not just him, but of his family. But in the meantime, Jesus delays and there is suffering and tragedy and Lazarus dies. So when we jump forward in this passage a few verses later to when Jesus does actually arrive, what he's walking into is actually a scene of grief and mourning. Look forward into verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Jesus comes to Bethany. He's one of the last people to arrive, and four days Lazarus has already been buried. And these two sisters hear that he's coming. One rushes out to meet him, and one stays behind. And ultimately, Jesus will speak to both of these women. Now, Having just read already, like, the, to the end of the story and to know what's coming, 
we're best to not brush over what's actually taken place, particularly from the perspective of Martha and Mary. Their brother has fallen ill, and they, over a period of days and hours, have watched as this illness has overcome him. They've witnessed over days and hours, potentially, his breathing getting more labored, or the fever increasing, or him losing the ability to eat or to drink, and then he has died. And throughout this, Jesus has been a no-show. So when Martha comes to Jesus, it's pretty clear that she says what she's thinking. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now I think the first half of this statement is really a variation of, of a question that has been cried out to God millions of times over history in people's moment of suffering. The question of, that's really implied of where were you? Why didn't you do something? Why are you not doing something? And perhaps the question that maybe lies a layer beneath that, which is, do you not love us? Are you not who you say that you are? Are you not able to do something in this situation? And it's the question that naturally arises when you go through something horrible, isn't it? To look at an event in your life, a grief or a trauma, or to even just broadly look out into our world and to see the suffering around, and to have that question rise up in the midst of that darkness and despair, God, if you were really in the world, would this have happened? Would this be happening? That is the essence, I think, of Martha's cry. It is what she's feeling on a deep level that she's just been through this most horrible experience and she's saying, Jesus, if you had just been here, you could have spared me this. And yet even in that, though, she has some hope. She says that she knows that Jesus has the ear of God and so then Jesus responds to her in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus hears Martha's cry and he offers her these words of hope, your brother will rise again. But it's actually worded quite ambiguously and it leads to Martha really misinterpreting what he's saying. She says, yeah, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha thinks that what Jesus is saying is just kind of pointing to this kind of doctrinal statement. This was orthodox Jewish thought that there was some idea, and it wasn't as central to Jewish people as it is, say, to Christians today. It wasn't, there's not much about the resurrection in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish Bible. But, but a, an average Jew in Jesus' time would have had this vague sense in the back of their mind that somehow, someday, death, which is this intrusion in the world, will be reversed. That there will be some kind of resurrection, that God will come through on that. But it was this murky, vague, distant kind of idea, even though it's kind of correct. And so Martha assents to this idea intellectually, but as I'm sure you can relate to, when you're in the midst of pain and you're suffering, these little religious platitudes, these little truth statements, they, they don't get you very far. You can get the sense that perhaps it's actually not a whole lot of comfort to her that somehow distantly, far away, in an unknown way, in some abstract concept, yes, her brother will rise again. It's disconnected from her everyday reality. It's perhaps a bit how, you know, maybe you're inclined to view your superannuation account, unless you're someone who's retired or getting close to retirement. It's this thing you know about, but it doesn't do a lot for you. 
If you imagine having like a conversation with someone as you're kind of letting off some of the frustration that so many of us are experiencing about the cost of living and making those hard decisions when you look at the bank account and you're like, oh, what's going to have to give? Is this holiday going to be able to go ahead? Or maybe I've got to hold on to this device a bit longer. And if, as you're explaining, the, your bank account is just looking a little bit low. If someone came to you and said, look, you're forgetting something. You've got another account. And you're not thinking about it, but it's yours. And it's, and it's actually got tens of thousands of dollars sitting in it with your name on it. So chin up. It's called superannuation. Like, in that moment, you're like, yeah, it doesn't really do anything for you, does it? It's like, maybe nice to know down the track you've got something, but in the moment, it's so disconnected. And I think in, with Martha's view of this distant, far-off resurrection, she's saying, yeah, I know the doctrine. I know that technically he'll rise. But in that moment, her brother is dead in the ground. And that's what feels most real. And so that's when we get to this next I am statement of Jesus. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now let's just unpack what Jesus is saying here. He says, I am the resurrection. Not, I am the means to a resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. What he's saying is that this solution to the problem of death that Martha has framed as this distant, far-off, uncertain thing, that Jesus is embodied. That he's the embodiment of the solution to the problem of death. Martha is grieving death, the hurt, the pain, the injustice of it. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And he spells that out, that out a bit further. He says that because of that reality, anyone who believes in him, death will be solved for. That anyone who believes in him, who trusts in him, even though they die physically, that will not be the end. They will rise again to new life. And then that life will be a life that will not be taken away by death. It will live forever. Jesus is saying that the hope and the hope to solve death, the hope of life, the other side of death, isn't to be found in some vague, distant, far-off doctrine, but it's to be found in a person. It's to be found in him and who he is and what he has done. It's a humongous claim to put before someone who is grieving. And he says, do you believe this? He's asking not, do you believe in this idea, but do you believe in me? He's not asking, do you believe, Martha, about some resurrection that you've inherited from your family and your culture. He's asking, Martha, do you believe me? Do you have faith in me? And she says to him in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now we're going to come back to that idea at the end, but that's just the first of these two encounters with these sisters. Jesus speaks to Martha and he, and he points her to this truth and this reality that he is the resurrection and the life. But Martha's sister Mary hasn't been there for this exchange. She has initially stayed home, perhaps overcome with grief when Martha has gone out. But Martha goes back and gets Mary and, and, and brings her out, and she comes to Jesus. And we see verse 32, she now speaks to him. Verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Mary comes out and she says the, the exact same thing that, that Martha had said to Jesus. If you had if been here, he wouldn't have died. 
And so maybe you'd expect, oh, we're just going to have the same conversation take place again for Jesus to say, look, you should have come out earlier. I've just explained to your sister, I'm the resurrection and life. Your brother will rise. Like, get with it. But this time it actually goes different, completely different. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come see. Jesus wept, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. We see a different response to the same question here. We see Jesus, it says he's deeply moved. That, that this, they've, they've translated it as best they can, but it's almost a hard line to translate because in the original Greek, it's, it conjures up maybe more than, than troubled and moved. It conjures up a, a feeling perhaps of, of anger, dismay, outrage, and he's weeping. And so the question is, why is Jesus weeping? Why is he outraged? Why is he moved on such an emotional level by this? Because he knows what he's about to do. He knows that Lazarus is going to rise again. So it can't be like grieving in the exact same way, for example, that Mary is. Nor, I think, is it just an act. He's not just putting on tears and then he's going to raise him from the dead anyway. I think we see here an insight into how Jesus, and, and through him, how God views death. We see here the empathy that Jesus feels. But he's not callous. He's not uncaring. When he sees people who are in pain, he feels that pain. He suffers and cries with them. And perhaps even more than that, in this, in this moment, in this little microcosm of this one family in Bethany 2,000 years ago, Jesus looks into the reality of death as a whole. And he's moved to tears at, at the pain and the suffering that death has caused because death it was not originally meant to be. The Bible teaches that death is an intrusion into our world, that it's not actually natural. It's a consequence of the world's fallenness, of the, of the sin of people in rejecting their creator, the giver of life. And the sadness and grief that is caught up in death is part of that broken world. It exists because sin exists. And because of that, death is something to be wept over. Tim Keller, who's one of, I think, this generation's just best Christian writers in, in speaking about the realities of Christian truth, who, who this year himself died, wrote, wrote a great many books, some obviously more well-known than others, but, but one that I don't think will actually end up being one of his bestsellers was a book that he wrote in the, in the final, um, I think only the final year of his life, which was simply titled On Death. And he writes in response to what he perceives, he, he was a, a pastor in New York, as a cultural downplaying of death, to, to deciding to speak about death like it's just, it's just part of life, it's just net, natural, it's just a chemical reaction. That the death you know, isn't that significant because in the words of another writer, we are, from a purely biological perspective, simply breathing pieces of defecating meat, no more significant or enduring than a lizard or a potato. I just had to throw that in there because... That is, I think, an, an, uh, a common way to view death, to, to try to rationalize it away, to say it's just a, a chemical process. But Keller points out that it's right to see death as a tragedy. He says, To say, oh, death is just natural, is to harden and perhaps kill a part of your heart's hope that makes you human. We know deep down that we're not like trees or grass. We were created to last. We don't want to be ephemeral, to be inconsequential. We don't want to just be a wave upon the sand. The deepest desires of our hearts are for love that lasts. 
Death is not the way it ought to be. It is abnormal. It is not a friend. It isn't right. This isn't truly part of the circle of life. Death is the end of it. So grieve, cry. The Bible tells us not only to weep, but to weep with those who are weeping. We have a lot of crying to do. We see here that Jesus sees death for what it is, something worth weeping over. And I think that is hopefully on some level a comfort if you are grieving or hurting, feeling loss, the wrongness, the seemingly unfairness or the not rightness about death, that Jesus doesn't just say, like, chin up, like, get over it, but he, he weeps with those who are weeping. And I think it's helpful as you actually balance how Jesus goes about speaking both to Martha and to Mary to kind of have these two different approaches. It's nuanced, it's balanced. With Martha, he speaks truth. Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. But with, with Mary, he gets down and he weeps, presumably knowing in his wisdom what each of these women needed in that moment. One to have their eyes lifted to hope and another one just to have someone sit alongside them and cry. And it provides a picture, I think, of how the Christian worldview can engage with grief, holding to this tension of pointing people to a hope, something that, that they can even rejoice in, and at the same time not seeing death as, as something that is flippant or irrelevant. So now we come to the crux of the story. Jesus has, has, has encountered and spoken to each of these two sisters, and now he performs the miracle. We'll take it from verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus comes to the tomb, and the natural objection arises when he asks for it to be open. They say, look, He's been dead four days. You're late. If you, if you wanted to see the body, you should have been here four days ago. Now it's going to stink. What are you asking us to do? And yet Jesus persists. He cries out and Lazarus is raised. And it's a remarkable miracle, to be sure. And it's a, it's a miracle that leaves you as well, I think, with like a whole lot of questions because that's the last we hear of Lazarus. That's the end of the story concerning him. Like, what, what happens next? That's what you'd want to know. What? It, What's his life like having had this experience? We're not told that. But what's, I think, noticeable about this miracle is that is what it doesn't actually solve in and of itself. Even for Lazarus, presumably life goes on and I guess he gets old and then he dies again. This miracle itself doesn't really solve the problem of death. Just as a few weeks back when we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000 miraculously, these hungry people came to him and he gave them bread, that bread didn't solve their problem of hunger. They just got hungry again the next day. So too, Lazarus, he, death is still coming for him. And it's isolated to one person. Jesus didn't go around he, raising everyone from the dead. This doesn't solve anything. But what it is, is a sign. Jesus does this as a grace, both to Lazarus, but to all who are watching, to be able to see that when he claims that he's the resurrection and the life, he has authority to make that statement that he is the ultimate solution to the problem of death. And ultimately, the, 
the solution doesn't come in, in, in Lazarus' death and resurrection, but in Jesus' own death and resurrection. That in order to defeat sin, the underlying problem beneath the reality of death in our world, that Jesus had to die. That he had to actually take on the sin of the world on himself, dying in the place of sinners to take away the power of death, to take on himself the ultimate judgment that, that death is for, and then three days later to rise from the dead, defeating death once and for all with the promise that any who believe in him will too rise again to eternity with God forever. That is Jesus' claim. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the solution to the problem of death. This death which is horrible, unnatural, foreign in our world, a tragic reality that each of us have to deal with. Jesus says, if you believe in me, that will be solved for you. So what do we do with this claim? I think for Christians, if you believe this, it, it can't but change how you navigate a death-filled world. For a person, a Christian person who believes what Jesus is saying, it means that although we are still able and we ought to grieve the reality of death and disdain its very existence and feel the pain of it and empathize with others who are in grief, for ourselves, we don't need to fear it. Because Jesus has transformed death for those who know him to not be the end, but instead to be a doorway into resurrection life. So for the church, death need not be this taboo, unspoken reality, but rather we can speak openly about the reality of death, pointing one another and the world to the reality that there is a hope, there is a way forward. We should not avoid thinking about the reality of death because the reality of death takes people to the answer for death. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. But if you're someone here today and you wouldn't, describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, this claim puts something before you. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, at some point you've got to work out, is that garbage or like made up or fake or lie or delusional or is that truth? Is Jesus completely just out of his mind or mythological or something else or is he telling the truth that he can solve the problem of death? And that is worth making a decision on. Jesus is in essence asking you, do you trust me not just with your life but with your death? Because one day you will step into that dark unknown as each of us will and the question will be, do you have hope for the other side? And Jesus points not simply to the resurrection of Lazarus but to his own resurrection as the evidence that he can do what he says he's going to do. To be frank, the, this account of, of Lazarus' resurrection is just recorded in this one book in the Gospel of John. There's no additional evidence around it, say, particularly. But the resurrection of Jesus is actually um, recorded in multiple texts from multiple authors. There is a weight of evidence, and there have been many, many, many books written explaining the evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That would be worth investigating if you were trying to determine what to make of this claim. Jesus invites you to do that. But he also invites you to look at him as a person and to see what he says, what he does, and to say, is he someone you can trust? 
is the way that he navigates life, is the way that he understands what we are going through, of what life is like, the way that he speaks and relates, is that the way that you can trust him? Do you know Jesus' love for you? Do you know the invitation he is offering you to, to worship him, to walk with him, and ultimately to find life with him? Because that is an offer that you can take up. And you can even take that up today. You can say to God in, in, in the quietness of your mind and your heart, Jesus, I need this. You're my only hope in the face of death. To speak to him and say, God, I know I've got this problem that I cannot solve myself. I ask you to solve that for me. To reveal yourself to me. To know me. To give me that certainty. And to enjoy that reality. So in a minute, we're going to move into a time of just reflection and prayer and then praise as we continue singing together. And that's something you might, it's, you might want to continue reflecting over that time. Or you might even want to pray in your own heart and mind, God, I need you. I understand that I have this problem. I thank you for what you've done. And if that's something you'd want us to follow up with you or to let us know that that is where you're at or that is what you're praying or that is what you're thinking or exploring, I'd really encourage you either just to come speak to me afterwards or speak to someone here that you know and trust or to write on those white cards because we would love to be hearing from you. But right now I'm just going to pray and to thank God for this reality that we have an answer to the problem of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. That although at the moment we're surrounded by all of the, the sin, the brokenness, the pain, the hurt that comes from being in a world that is infected with sin and death, we know that there is a hope. It is not a hope that is far off, distant, unrelatable, but it is a hope that is grounded in a person who has really lived and really died and really risen again. And we pray that we would be people who know that reality and are freed from the fear, the worry that comes from knowing that one day we, one day we too will die. That we would be filled with a hope of life, of joy, of knowing you forever. And that we as a church would be pointing people to you, the, the one that they most desperately need. And Lord, for anyone who is in this room and who is still grappling with this, wrestling with this, I pray that you would be with them and speaking to them and comforting them and working in them that they may know you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.